If you would, take your Bibles, please, and open to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Since Palm Sunday, we have been considering the matter of the cross, including what we've seen in the last few Sundays of being crucified with Christ, and what that means, dying to the old self. And what that entails, it means turning away from the old ways, otherwise known as repentance. And what is the symbol, what is the sign of that reality that we have turned from the old to the new, and that is baptism, being buried as Christ was and then raised to newness of life. Today, I'd like to consider two additional aspects of being crucified, something that we may not expect. They're found here in the last part of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Usually when we come to the end of a letter from Paul, uh, we expect a personal greeting from him or from the people that are with him, the brothers that are with him. Um, We would expect that he would mention a desire to see the Galatians again, um, that he would tell them that he's praying for them, and he would ask them to pray for him. We don't find any of that here at the end of Galatians. Instead, what we find are very personal remarks in which he basically restates what he said in the previous five chapters in this letter to the Galatians. Even his final greeting is somewhat toned down, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, but it is followed by the powerful words even to the Israel of God. Now, we should not think that somehow Paul is miffed at these people, that the relationship has been strained, and that's why he's not very cordial here at the end. I think he is, but not as personal as we might expect. Well, if you look at verse number 18 in chapter 6, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So the relationship is still there. Okay, That's not why we find what we do. By the way, nine times in this letter, he refers to them as brothers. So he's not mad at them or angry at them as such. He's not casting them off. He's simply trying to correct uh, the false doctrine that they have heard. Verse number 11 marks the, the beginning of this last part of the letter. And he says, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. See, in Paul's day, people didn't write letters the way we we do. Now we do it at the computer, or it used to be you did it by hand. That's not how people used to do it. They would speak it, and you'd have a professional secretary or a scribe who would transcribe what you said. And part of this, and we won't get into it, is that people didn't read silently. They didn't have the ability to read without doing it out loud. They tend to be much more oral. So when we look at Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians, for example, Sosthenes is the scribe who writes it down. Uh, Timothy is ascribed for at least five of Paul's letters, and Silas for the two letters to the Thessalonians. Um, At the end of Romans, interestingly enough, Tertius, who is the scribe who writes it down, um, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. So even the scribe manages to get in a greeting there at the end. If, in fact, you could go back and get the original copy of Paul's letter to the Galatians, you would find two different types of penmanship. 
That is that the scribe would be up to Galatians, uh, chapter 6, verse 10. And then at the very end, you have a different penmanship, and that would be Paul's itself. Um, this is something, by the way, that we find from ancient documents from the first century. That you have letters, and at the very end, it's a different penmanship. It's the person who's actually speaking the letter to the scribe or to the secretary. Okay? And Paul, at the end of his letters, would do that. Uh, to the Thessalonians, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. That is, previously, it was uh, uh, Silas who'd been writing, but now it is Paul who, at the end, is sort of a personal touch, he writes with his own handwriting. Now, the letter that Paul sent to the Galatians, he sent one letter, and it was to be copied and spread throughout the province of Galatia. But even if that wasn't the case, the people in Galatia would not see that there were two different types of penmanship. That's not how it worked. It was read aloud to them. And so Paul makes it very clear at this point that he is writing it with his own hand so that people, as they hear it being read, will know, oh, okay, this is the part that Paul himself wrote down. Why does he do this? Why does he say, with what large letters I have written? Well, some have suggested that Paul had very bad eyesight because of his experience on the road to Damascus. Um, he was blind for three days and then his sight was returned, but that he, from that point on, suffered from bad eyesight. Um, some people say this is his thorn in the flesh. Um, and in chapter 4, by the way, of Galatians, Paul says something very interesting. You would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. I mean, why... Why mention this? So there's an indication that Paul had bad eyesight. But another explanation is that Paul is saying, listen, I'm writing in capital letters. You better listen to this. Okay, this stuff is important. So when he says I'm writing in large letters, he's trying to call their attention to it. And so let's begin reading in verse number 12 as he, these are the large letters that Paul is writing in as he writes to the Galatians. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. This sort of recalls what he wrote earlier in chapter 5 or 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. It is in the last verses of both sections in chapters 5 and 6 that Paul makes a point that your physical status, your physical state, being circumcised or not being circumcised, really has no bearing on whether or not you are a part of the family of God. Okay, but who in fact was saying this? Who was saying that you had to be circumcised? Well, there are men who have been following Paul wherever he goes on his missionary journeys, and they come to the Gentile believers because now the word of the Old Testament, Jehovah, the Messiah, which belonged to the Jews, is now going to the Gentiles. And as Paul travels among the Gentiles, there are Jews from Jerusalem who are following him. 
And if we could recreate the scene, they are saying to these people, brothers, you are our brothers in Christ. We believe in Jesus as you do. That's great. There's one thing missing. You need to keep the law of Moses. And men, you need to be circumcised, because if you're not circumcised, you're not saved. Unless you think that I'm exaggerating, in Acts chapter 15, when they have the first church council in Jerusalem, um, some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This is what they were preaching. So in a sense, they're being quite sneaky about this, saying brothers, when in fact they didn't believe they were brothers, you have to be circumcised before you can be saved. And in Acts 15, we, then some of, the, uh, some of the believers, this is what they're called, they're not just false teachers, they are believers, who belong to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So there are those in the early church who are saying, it's great that Jesus has come, but let's not forget Moses. We need to keep the law of Moses in order for someone to be a child of God. And why would they do this? Well, in verses 12 and 13, Paul explains. They want to make a good impression outwardly. And they want to impress the people back home. They want to send reports. Look at all the, gen- all the Gentile believers that we got to be circumcised. It is self-promotion, I think, of the worst kind. They want to be congratulated when they get home for all the converts that they have made on their trips. Secondly, they don't want to be persecuted. You see, the Jews weren't persecuted. Christians were. So if you can get people to be circumcised, then technically they are Jewish. They are converts to Judaism. And then they will not be persecuted as Christians because they will be seen primarily as Jews. Paul's like, if you preach the cross, you will be persecuted. You preach circumcision? No, you won't. That's why this is what they preach. Thirdly, he says in verse 13, they are hypocrites. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law. They tell people, you've got to keep the law. They don't keep the law. It is the highest form of hypocrisy. Earlier in chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You go down that road, you have to stick to it, you have to keep all the commandments, when in fact they were not. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul wrote to them, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. If these men from Jerusalem are in fact going to be genuine, if they're going to live out their faith, then they would do this. Paul says, in fact, they are not. As Jesus said to the Pharisees during his ministry, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Then lastly, we come full circle in verse number 13. They want to boast about their conquests, their conversions among the Galatians. Again, it's about self-promotion. It is this idea of boasting that allows Paul to transition to our text, our text today, verse number 14. They're talking about boasting. 
And Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Where the men from Jerusalem want to boast about their trophies, their conquests in Galatia, Paul will not boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is so familiar to us that I think we really do need to take a moment and stop and think. We're so used to the symbol of the cross. People wear it as a piece of jewelry. But its sacredness, I think, has been lost, and the meaning of it has been lost. The cross represents death. And it is not simply death, it is a disgraceful death. That the purpose of crucifying someone in the Roman system was to publicly humiliate that person. Public degradation of the individual. Not exactly something that you would want to boast about. But also in the Old Testament law, we are told in Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The cross represented the power of the Roman Empire, but it also represented the disgrace being cursed by God for being hung on a tree. It almost takes your breath away if you think about it. One writer put it this way, Left uninterpreted, the cross of Jesus Christ makes no sense at all. Still less would there be any boasting in it. To many in Paul's day and in our own, the cross signaled the defeat of Jesus Christ. It demonstrated failure. Some have even suggested that the story of the resurrection was invented to provide some sort of gloss over an otherwise depressing story of failure and rejection. How then can Paul boast in the cross? We might expect him to say, and we might like it better if he would say, I boast in Jesus Christ, or I boast in the love of God. We certainly hear this in 1 Corinthians. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is written, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 1 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. But both of these are quotations from the book of Jeremiah chapter 9. But we'd ask Paul, what do you mean? He's written earlier in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. If you were to ask anyone who knows a bit about the Christian faith, what does this verse mean? Why did the Messiah come to be a curse for us? You'd probably get something like, so that we would be freed from sin, that our sins would be forgiven and we would be able to share fellowship with God for all eternity. Paul goes in a different direction. What is the curse of the law? Okay. There are two curses. The first is, if you don't keep every single commandment in the law, you're cursed. Okay. And secondly, if someone is hung on a tree, that person is cursed. How did the Messiah become a curse for us? He was crucified. He was hung on a tree. This is the gospel that Paul is resolved to know nothing except the cross of Christ. A criminal was hanged because he had broken the law. 
And breaking the law brought both curse and punishment. What Paul intends is that man is cursed by God, not just because he's hanged. It's the outward sign that, in fact, you have failed to keep God's commandments. But as I said, Paul goes in a different direction. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. In other words, God had made a promise to Abraham that he would have descendants. And it is because of the death of Christ on the cross that we get to become those descendants. We become the children of faith. Okay? All the peoples on the earth, Gentiles and Jews, can become the people of God. We were, in fact, on the road of curse, being cursed because we do not keep God's law. We do things contrary to God's law. But now, because of the Messiah, because of the cross, we, in fact, are now the children of God. Jesus took our curse on himself on the cross, by being on the cross. This is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And no wonder we hear Paul saying that he will boast in the cross. Because he doesn't see it as a symbol of death, he sees it as a symbol of life. We have life because Christ died on the cross. There are two consequences of the cross of Christ, as Paul mentions here in verse number 14. And this is the topic of our meditation today. First of all, the world has been crucified to me. Well, if you know the book of Galatians at all, Paul has told us that not only has the Messiah been crucified, um, but we have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20, we looked at it several weeks ago. But now he tells us that the world itself has been crucified. You see, Calvary was the turning point in human history. I'll come back to this at the end. But this is critical for us to see. Creation had the curse of death, the sentence of death pronounced on it because of what Adam and Eve did. With the death of Christ, the curse is removed and we move from the old creation and now we are looking toward the new creation. The old world has been put to death. It has been crucified. The new creation began with Jesus himself when he was raised from the dead. And it continues because of the spirit of God, spirit given life that we find in God's people. So as we look at the cross of Christ, and we have been doing it now for more than four weeks, we need to consider that it also includes the crucifixion of the world. That the old is gone, and the new has come. For the old to be gone, it has to be put to death. This was done at the cross. But the second thing for our meditation is, Paul says, I have been crucified to the world, I to the world. The old world is put to death, the new world is promised. When you think of what Jesus has done on the cross, that it is the turning point in human history, why would you want to cling to the old that has been put to death? The old world has been crucified. Its values, its identity markers, its way of life, they have been put to death on the cross. 
And that's why Paul says, I have been crucified to the world. That is, by the grace of God, Paul recognized, and so should we, that the world in its present form is passing away. It's not going to be around forever. It is, in fact, passing away. But those who have rejected the Messiah persecute those who have accepted him as their Savior. Also, Paul is a new creature. So, verse number 15, Paul continues by saying, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. It's the new world. In the death of Christ and in his resurrection, we have the beginning of the new creation. If, in fact, Jesus has brought about the new creation, why would you want to cling to the old? Jesus is the good news, the good news of new life and the good news of new creation. This is what Paul had preached to the Galatians. This is the gospel that they heard and they believed. This is the gospel, the good news that they had put their faith in, that they followed, that Jesus the Messiah had been put to death. But it is the good news that the men from Jerusalem want them to turn their backs on. If you were to ask someone who knows the New Testament fairly well, choose one word. What would be the single word for the book of Galatians? What is the key word? Um, I suspect many people would say circumcision because it's the issue that comes up again and again and again. And indeed, that would seem to be the case. In fact, verse number 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. But that isn't actually the key to this book. It's the cross. It is the cross of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and us being crucified with Christ and the world being put to death and us to the world. It redefined Paul. I have been crucified to the world and the world is now beginning anew. It is the new creation because of the death of Christ. Then if you would look at verse number 16. It's the new creation, right? Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. This is an amazing verse that could serve as fuel for many sermons. But just for you to consider, the word peace is one of the words used for greeting in verse number 3 of chapter 1. The prophets of the Old Testament spoke of shalom, as that which God will, it is the fulfilling of what God has promised. God has made promises, and when they are fulfilled, that is shalom, that is peace. He is going to restore things. In fact, if you wanted to summarize the new creation, use the word peace. That is it. It is shalom. It embraces every aspect of our existence, our past, our present, and our future. And I would say in this single word, we are given insight into what Paul has written. God's plan for what Peter called his plan to restore everything. This is what Paul saw as God's plan to have a people, to redeem his people, to rescue them, and to lead them to the new creation. And then the second word is mercy. It basically refers to the grace of God. But when we speak of grace, 
the emphasis is on the undeserved character. We don't deserve God's grace. Um, But when we speak of mercy, we are in fact speaking of someone who is in need. It isn't simply something that is undeserved. It is something that is needed. So there is peace and there is mercy. For those who follow this rule, Paul says, just because we have been freed, just because we have been put to death to the world, doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want. What is that principle? What is the rule, by the way? Um, People for centuries have been making up rules that this is the way Christians are supposed to live. Some circles we call this legalism. You're not a good Christian if you don't do these things. But what is the rule that Paul has in mind? It is the cross. It's the centrality of the cross. This is the center of the Christian faith. Because in the cross we find us being redeemed by the blood of Christ. We find the world, the old world, being put aside. And we find a new identity for the people of God. We don't look to the old identity. We don't try to win a new identity. We put our faith in Christ and we are new creatures. And then he says the Israel of God. Um, This is the only place in the Bible that we find this expression. Um, We hear of the God of Israel, but we never hear of the Israel of God. Who who is the Israel of God? Well, again, we have to go back to chapter 3. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. Those who believe in the Messiah are the Israel of God. Those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And there it is. That is the rule, the centrality of the cross, that we are now the people of God, the Israel of God. Since Palm Sunday, we've been considering various aspects of the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, including his being raised from the dead on Easter Sunday. But I must confess that I think that the death of Jesus is something that we have unwittingly diminished in our thinking. Some people may think of it as a martyrdom, others as an example. We would say, no, no, it's not that. It is a sacrifice to pay for our sins. Yes, but it is much, much more than that. It is the turning point of human history. It marks the end of the old and the beginning of the new. The resurrection of Jesus is proof of this. You see, other people had been raised from the dead but not with new bodies, not with a resurrection body. This we see in Jesus. The death of Jesus illustrates our dying to the old way, and his resurrection points to new life. More than that, the crucifixion tells us of the ending of the old way, the old world, and his resurrection points to new life. As Paul writes in verse 15, what counts is a new creation. Are you familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the beginning? Paul writes something that 
I think we accept, but it's a, a bit confusing. The first two verses, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Some people read that and say, really? That's all he preached about? That's all he taught about? I mean, you go for a Bible study or a service and Paul's preaching and he's going to talk about the death of Christ. Not again. It's like an evangelistic sermon every time he speaks. But wait a minute. What if the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is the turning point in human history? What if, in fact, it marks the end of the old world and the beginning of the new? What if the resurrection of Jesus is proof of this? Jesus had to die first before he could be raised from the dead. What if the death of Jesus illustrates our dying to the old ways of life and his resurrection points to new life? What if the crucifixion tells us of the ending of the old world and the resurrection points to the new creation? If that's true, then all we need to know with Paul is Jesus Christ and him crucified. I think for many of us, we may not even be aware of the fact that we see the death and resurrection of Jesus as a really special thing that happened, a very significant event in history. Um, it means our salvation. It means our redemption, that we are the people of God. I don't know that we see it as the turning point in human history. I think we would we might not even blush or blink to think that, uh, no, Rene Descartes, that's the turning point in history. Or Copernicus. Or Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Karl Marx. Those are the turning points in history when human thinking is radically changed. No. The turning point in human history is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The old is fading away. It's passing away. The new is coming. The new creation. That's why the cross is central. See, otherwise we just think, well, we're really glad that Jesus died and it was a terrible death and his blood was shed, so we get to go to heaven. Isn't that great? It's much, much more than that. And in verse number 14, here in Galatians 6, we see that, that the world is being crucified. What does that mean? It's passing away. It's being done away with because the new has come. Circumcision, uncircumcision, that's nothing. What counts is the new creation because that's what the cross of Christ signifies. And I think for some of us, we need to do some serious meditation. We need to sit down and think about what do we think, in fact, was the turning point in human history? Perhaps we don't think there was any. But I think everyone tends to point to a particular point in history and say, yeah, that's where things changed. And since we live in a modern or postmodern age, uh, we tend to look at specific figures and their writings. And um, I think for most people, the, the modern age begins with Descartes. Politically with Rousseau, John Locke. In the 19th century with Karl Marx. And then you have Freud, 
have Nietzsche. These radically changed human thinking. Yes, but they are not the turning point in human history. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's why Paul is not going to boast about anything else. You want to boast? He'll boast on the cross. That is the turning point in human history. By God's grace, may we think on these things and meditate on them in the days to come. Let's pray together. Father, in some ways it seems so strange that you have given us good news. We're not quite satisfied with it. In some ways we diminish it and inflate other aspects of our thinking. May we see, as Paul writes, that we are not to have any confidence, we're not to boast in anything except the cross of Christ that this is the central event in human history. We may have our favorite philosophers or authors, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnation and his death, burial, and resurrection that turned history around. What is coming is the new creation. We live in that transition period between the old and the new, So we may be tempted to think like the old, think in terms of the old, and forget about the new. If we are your people, the brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for us, our thinking needs to be changed. And we put no confidence, we boast in nothing except the Lord Jesus and him crucified. By your spirit in the days to come, may we think on these things and not be hearers only, but doers of the word. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. Once again, we pray for our sister Rosa during this time of loss, that you would comfort her. And once again, we are so grateful that Dan and Lonnie are with us. Continue to strengthen them. Be with us as we leave this place, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.